it is good to be here with you to discuss life extension. It's great to have you on the show, and I hope to have many, many more members of the transhumanist community on in the future. But, really, your book was one of the things that introduced me to the concept of life extension. I was not familiar with it. It wasn't something that had really crossed my mind. And I know that you began thinking about it very early on in your life, which is a bit unusual, but it's a wonderful thing. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Certainly. Well, the moment I found out that death is real, I was outraged by it, as I think a lot of children are. And no matter what my parents, grandparents tried to do to console me, they were not successful. And I'm glad that they were not successful at that, because I think that initial reaction of outrage is a very justified one. I thought, well, if a person is a good individual, has done nothing wrong, why does that person deserve oblivion? Why does that person deserve to lose everything, not just for the future, but even any memory of having existed, having experienced anything? I thought that was extremely unjust, and I realized as I kept living, all of the wonder and abundance and variety of the world should not just be allowed to cease for an individual, should not just be extinguished. And when I was five, I vowed to do something to fight against death. Whether or not I will be successful is an open question. However, I took a great interest in anything that could assist in that fight. And for a while, when uh, I was a child, when I was a teenager, uh, I was perplexed that very few people seemed to recognize that this is a problem. A lot of people seem to have built up elaborate rationalizations for it. But I discovered that there is a burgeoning movement of individuals who think the same way. And Dr. Aubrey de Grey's research in particular was very formative for me because he had done a survey to suggest that the seven major constituent components of senescence have already been identified and the one identified most recently has been known for over three decades so that suggested that we know what the problem is it's just a question of figuring out an approach that could be deployed in time for us and it's not an approach that would necessarily enable us to control every detail of human metabolism but rather what is perhaps a simpler problem the problem of reversing the damage that accumulates in our bodies over time so that's what Aubrey de Grey is working on and I had to raise the question for myself what could I do to contribute uniquely, of course. One can always write articles, do videos, uh, read up on the science, but ultimately I'm not a biologist, I'm not a doctor, so what could I do? And I realized a lot of people, when they are children, have the same reaction that I had to the prospect of death, and yet all of the cultural weaponry to justify death is uh, kind of intended to snuff out that outrage, to get people to resign themselves to the concept so they can live day to day without fear. But I think some of that fear is healthy because to the extent that it can motivate people to uh, attack the problem, uh, that could really make a significant difference in our lifetimes. 
and talking about research, current research, no one is really looking for an immortality pill at this point, but as long as we keep discovering things that can prolong lifespan just a bit, which is really what we've been doing for the past five centuries or so, we have found ways to keep people from dying, whether it's through antibiotics, through uh, early intervention, through insulin, through whatever, it helps. All these little bits add up and eventually through personalized medicine we can keep someone from deteriorating over time and hopefully through nanotechnology as well. So it's just a matter of riding out the storm. We're at the precipice of what we should call, for lack of a better word, immortality. Even though that sounds slightly insane and that goes back to the problem of cultural baggage. Because we have had to deal with death for so long, we just embrace these justifications that don't really need to be there anymore. Yes, and I think you hit on several very important points. The fact that there is no single panacea, no single elixir of immortality is a very important idea to convey. Our life expectancies have already increased about five-fold since the Paleolithic period, and during the 20th century there were major increases due to victories in the war against infectious diseases. At the beginning of the 20th century, some of the biggest killers were typhus, cholera, malaria, diseases that have largely been eradicated in the West. And even during the latter half of the 20th century, Significant progress has been made in reducing mortality from cardiovascular disease. When uh, I was looking at statistics for mortality rates for cardiovascular disease, even in the 1970s, they were about four times higher than they are today. And this is something that gives me tremendous hope because sometimes when I go out and just look at the everyday world, I think, well, how different is it from the year 1975? But then when I see these mortality statistics, I realize there is this vast, vast difference under the surface. And if similar gains can be achieved with, say, cancer or Alzheimer's disease, then uh, that will imply additional years of life expectancy gained. Uh, ultimately, what we seek to achieve is longevity escape velocity, which you hinted at. The extension of life expectancy at a faster rate than the passage of time, so that we can become biologically younger over time and our probability of contracting a particular disease is reduced. For a 20-year-old, the probability of contracting many cancers is about one thousandth that of a 60-year-old. So if you can take a 60-year-old's body and rejuvenate it to that of a 20-year-old, then again you reduce that probability. And that's not invulnerability, that's nothing magical. Some people unfortunately would still fall prey to accidents or diseases just due to really bad uh, luck, a, co a coincidence of circumstances that uh, is unfortunate. However, the statistical rates of mortality would decline significantly and that would mean significant increases in life expectancy. So uh, we in our generation have a significant shot, but of course it's an open question. How rapidly will the progress occur? And a lot of the variables that would go into that are not just technical, they're cultural. 
they depend on the extent to which people are motivated to support this life-extending research. It is unfortunate that culture can sometimes shape the direction that scientific progress takes. I mean, the most one of the most dramatic examples I can think of is Lysenko in the Soviet Union. But people need to realize that what underlies the vast majority of diseases, at least the diseases we have to worry about in the civilized world, are the result of aging, or at least aging makes them much more probable, as you said. So understanding these mechanisms is necessary for treating heart disease, cancer, diabetes, any of these things that are bound to afflict the majority of us at some point in our lifetimes. So it's a humanitarian effort. And when I talk about life extension with many people, including educated people, they're under the mistaken impression that you would be increasingly feeble, that it would be something like life support rather than rejuvenation, which is very unfortunate. Indeed, this is a very commonplace error, and I'm actually quite surprised at how commonplace it is that people don't realize the only way you can have sustainable life extension is if you have youth extension, or at the very least, reversion to a youthful state. This is the old uh, Greek myth of Tithonus, uh, whose lover essentially was a goddess who asked for immortality for him without also requesting eternal youth. So he became frailer and frailer as he uh, continued to live on. And that myth, uh, in some incarnation or another, has stuck in the consciousness of many people. Perhaps it was developed as a way of getting the ancients to reconcile themselves to their own mortality. But uh, I think it's kind of strange that people don't realize if you keep getting frailer and frailer then over time the probability of something killing you necessarily increases. The only way to avoid that is to turn back the biological clock while the chronological clock keeps proceeding. And I think there the question that ought to be posed to a lot of people is given your present life circumstances today would you want to live another day? And for the vast majority of people, the answer would be yes, because they're not suicidal, they're not making active efforts to end their lives. So if they keep uh, engaging in that sort of calculus from day to day, who's to say a hundred years from now, if their bodies are in a similar state, or hopefully even an improved state, they wouldn't make the same decision. And that's, that's the thing also uh, that I think a lot of people need to understand. If they want to keep living tomorrow from today's vantage point, then it would seem irrational for them to say, oh, but I wouldn't want to keep living a hundred years from now. Just wait a hundred years minus one day and then make that determination. And uh, life extension technology will give people the option to make that determination. Yes, it's about choice, and that's another thing, another misconception that crops up is people think that life extensionists want everyone to be immortal and force them to live forever. Of course, that's not what anyone wants. Certainly, you have a choice in the matter if you want to live or if you want to die. Indeed. I think that's a basic human right. Of course, you should probably speak with a mental health professional prior to taking your life, but that's a different topic. I, 
I think in order to find out if someone really wants to live or not, you'd have to put a gun up to their head. And I think the vast majority of them would say, yes, I want to live in those circumstances. Although without the gun, they may pretend to be indifferent to the matter of death. Yes. And it seems to me people go through a lot of mental effort to try to put the problem out of their minds, perhaps because they've been conditioned to think this is too big of a problem for them as individuals to do anything about. And over the course of history, it's certainly an understandable mindset because there were many, many generations of people for whom life-extending technologies were indeed out of reach. Uh, some of them could hope to live to be 50 or 60, but uh, almost none of them could hope to be a hundred. Yet, right now we are on the cusp, as you mentioned, and attitude really matters here. Uh, we've seen that when people really want to achieve something, they'll find the resources for it. That's why so many charitable efforts thrive. That's why, uh, for instance, the fight against cancer does receive decent funding. However, uh, cancer is just one of the enemies that we need to attack, and without attacking the underlying uh, environment in which these diseases develop, which is the environment of a senescent organism, it's essentially a losing battle, because even if you cure one person's cancer, you might extend that person's life expectancy for a few years if that person is already advanced in age, but uh, that person's body is vulnerable to other diseases, so if the cancer doesn't get that individual, Alzheimer's disease might in a few years. So how do you change that underlying baseline of health? That's the big challenge for the next 20 to 30 years. Yes, and there's some organisms that offer good models for studying these things. Some of them are very simple, like the jellyfish, the hydra, but others like the naked mole rat could be very useful. And that's what some of my work is about in bioinformatics. But going back to history and people, the history of life extension, some of history's most brilliant minds were able to perceive the possibility of life extension, like Benjamin Franklin, Francis Bacon, to a lesser extent Leibniz. Indeed. And so I, I hate to make an appeal to authority, but these are some of the most brilliant minds of all time, and they see it. But there's another misconception that people think that the body is bound to wear down and they invoke entropy. But the body is not a closed system. Yes. That. So, well, that's just another thing that has to be battered down and destroyed. I can only imagine the sort of resistance you met in high school, of all places, advocating life extension. Yes, and in my children's book, Death is Wrong, I write about this, how I tried at the time to raise money for the Methuselah Mouse Prize, and uh, it seemed to me a lot of people were just completely apathetic to the prospect. My most effective fundraising technique was to pick up spare change that uh, some careless teenagers dropped in the hallways, and I actually managed to get uh, about $286 from doing that because I was quite diligent at it. But uh, to persuade people, uh, that is the real challenge, not because 
the arguments aren't there. I think the arguments are quite strong, but because the defenses people have uh, have been built up over such a long time, and when one tries to make the case for indefinite life extension, one is up against uh, pretty much every established religious tradition, as well as a lot of secular patterns of thinking. So this is where I think influencing a lot of people as children can really help. Uh, prior to Death is Wrong, there was no children's book or children's resource on transhumanism, indefinite life extension, this vision of boundless possibility in the future. There were a lot of such resources for adults already, fortunately, through the work of people like Aubrey de Grey, Ray Kurzweil, Max Moore, and many others. But it seems that children uh, first had to pass through a lot of resistance before being able to access those works intellectually. And a lot of people, unfortunately, do not surmount that resistance if they get stuck in a tradition that says, oh, you don't have to worry about death because there's an afterlife where uh, you get eternal bliss. Or you don't have to worry about death because, oh, it's all natural, it's all uh, part of the cycle of life, and uh, you would really be way too selfish if you just wanted to live indefinitely at the expense of the ecosystem or evolution or whatever other justification people come up with. And unfortunately, so many people get trapped in that. And I realized that if something is taught to a person as a child, especially if it's taught in a dogmatic way, it's very diff difficult for the child to overcome that. Unless there is some other source of information that says, wait a minute, this is not the only point of view, this is not the only position. Uh, actually, uh, perhaps your outrage that you experienced when initially finding out about death was a good reaction, something you could expand upon, something uh, you could use to motivate you to learn something and do something about the problem. And to see it more than anything is just a design flaw. And if, yeah. someone, if someone is born with webbed fingers, whatever, we just remove them now, surgically. No one thinks that that's a great crime against nature. Yes. <laughs> and it seems like an arbitrary line that people draw, and it's a line that keeps moving over time, but uh, sometimes it moves too slowly. Uh, a lot of people in the 19th century rejected anesthesia for instance, considering it almost ungodly. But they also rejected, say, travel by railroad, thinking it would somehow damage the human organism to exceed a speed of 30 miles per hour. And over time, people were acclimated to it. And I think even irrespective of their philosophical tradition, they became acclimated to it. Very few religious people today object to, uh, say, open-heart surgery or even uh, a lot of prosthetics. And yet, when it comes to certain emerging technologies, say, genetic modification or nanotechnology, uh, a lot of people still exhibit these fears. And I think a lot of the fears are simply because this is new. This is not widespread yet, so uh, somebody can posit it in a threatening way and then a lot of people uh, take recourse to their familiar intellectual systems and try to justify it. Even the people who have pretty accurate worldviews otherwise. Unfortunately, uh, I've even 
encountered a lot of resistance to indefinite life extension, say, in the objectivist community. And objectivists pride themselves on focusing on reason and reality and embracing individualism and technological progress, and yet uh, there were bizarre reactions that I sometimes encountered, people saying, oh, well, uh, without the prospect of death, you can't really uh, make uh, rational choices about how to live. Uh, and I'm thinking, well, uh, wait a minute, you don't have to be faced with the prospect of death to be motivated to act. Your motivation to act doesn't have to be a stick, it can be a carrot, it can be a desire to bring something wonderful into the world or to appreciate what already exists. It doesn't have to be something on which your survival is contingent. So I've had these disagreements even with people who would consider themselves to be very rational but they have this blind spot. Well, it's, it's absolutely bizarre for people who are individualists and atheists to be opposed to it. Also people who believe strongly in the power of the human intellect and progress. I don't know, I don't think there are many people who wake up in the morning and say, I better make breakfast and go to the gym or do whatever you enjoy because, you know, I might die tomorrow. No, of course not. You do the things because you enjoy them because Indeed. they... <laughs> They produce endorphins in your brain, or you get some sort of satisfaction from mastery. I remember Neil deGrasse Tyson said something along those lines, and I thought, at what age does life get meaning? What age are you supposed to die at? Is it 200, 300? When does life lose its meaning? If you live, if you know you can live a thousand years, is it suddenly meaningless at that point? I, it's absolutely absurd. But it's this knee-jerk psychological defense. Absolutely. And uh, I have to uh, es essentially wonder when I hear arguments that, oh, the sense of urgency that is brought about by the prospect of death uh, leads people to be motivated to do something. And I'm thinking, no, the sense of urgency, uh, whenever one actually experiences it is an inhibitor in many ways because it leads to suboptimal knee-jerk kinds of decisions. You have to do something right away, right now, or else uh, everything will crumble. And the best work, the best decisions, uh, the best way to improve one's life, uh, all of that comes from very thoughtful, deliberate action, the kind of action where you can look forward many, many years and plan and have a reasonable chance of those plans coming to fruition. Uh, I've argued in Death is Wrong that if a person lives indefinitely, that individual is going to care a lot more about his or her impact on the external world, say, pollution would become a much bigger concern. If you're around to suffer the consequences of a polluting behavior 50, 100, 1,000 years from now, likewise there would be more interest in space colonization for the preservation of the human species in case there's an asteroid impact uh, upon the Earth. And also people would have longer time horizons with which to create something, to uh, create 
a large work, a large work of literature, a lot of musical compositions perhaps contribute to building a city or building a civilization that would take thousands of years to come to full fruition. Like Chaucer said, it takes so long to gain a trade and we have so little time to use it. Yes. So if you want to become a great writer or a musician or whatever, you need to know that you're going to be around for a while. You can't just sit down and say, I'm going to write a symphony today. <laughs> Unless yes. you're Mozart, but he started very young. He did. He did. And it's so unfortunate that the world lost Mozart when he was only 35, because uh, had he had even another 30 years, uh, he could have more than doubled his output. And uh, one could only imagine what sorts of wonderful combinations of sounds he would have produced that now because his unique mind has been lost to us uh, we can never know for sure what he would have brought into this world. Uh, on the other hand, take someone like Telemann, who is the most prolific composer in history uh, up to our time. He lived to be 86, which was quite advanced for his time, and he devoted his life pretty much exclusively to composition, so uh, he was able to gain the economies of scale and economies of scope needed to produce more than 3,000 works. Uh, and this suggests that if we want another Telemann or another Mozart with many times more productivity than even Mozart himself had, we need to radically extend human lifespans in order for such individuals to emerge and have the time to develop their craft. Well, basic mathematics shows that there are an essentially unlimited number of combinations of things that you can do. If you want to drink Cabernet on a ship in the Mediterranean and make love while watching your favorite movie, why not? Go ahead and do it. If you want to work for a period of time as a blacksmith <laughs> or as a computer programmer, why not? but it's just the window is so small. Our, our lives are consumed between school, marriage, raising a family. By the time we're retired, we're, many of us are spent. Yes, yes, and that's really the sad observation about contemporary life that I have had. It seems uh, it is a long and arduous path to try to even get to a high standard of living, to material prosperity. And for a lot of people, because of the length of time it takes to complete their educations, if they have debts, to pay off their debts, to accumulate savings, to acquire property, if they want to raise a family, to raise a family, by the time they've become accomplished in all of these areas and overcome the many barriers that stand uh, along pretty much everyone's way, their health begins to fail. So yes, now you have money, now you have material security, but can you really enjoy it if your body is in decline, if you're in constant pain, if you uh, are worried about whether you'll survive the next decade? And so this is a great tragedy, and I think it's a tragedy that needs to be overcome, because ultimately each individual uh, builds up this precious internal universe. And it's an internal universe that can affect our 
external universe uh, for the better if that individual is properly motivated and incentivized. But that all gets lost and extinguished so quickly. And if it didn't, our rate of progress would be so much faster. Imagine a person with 80 years of experience and knowledge, but with the vitality of somebody who's 20. I think it's difficult for people to conceive of what the world may be in 20 or 30 years. And that's another thing that needs to be addressed is our very short-term outlook. It's almost as though all of humanity right now is undergoing an adolescence of sorts. Impulsive, silly, preoccupied with things that just don't really matter. They may matter today or seem to, but they don't tomorrow. Yes, and there's a tremendous status quo bias that I have observed in a lot of people, this strange notion that the way things are right now are the way things have always been and are always going to be, even though it's patently false. And I think the more discerning individuals can recognize the falsehood even with regard to their own lives and their own circumstances. Uh, mobile phones were very different ten years ago. We did not have smartphones uh, for the most part. Uh, the state of the internet was very different ten years ago. I remember uh, because I was actually one of the early presences uh, online with my magazine, The Rational Argumentator, and how that has evolved. Of course, day-to-day, -day, sometimes one day does resemble the next, and sometimes people who have these immediate pressures, this sense of urgency, which I argue is actually very deleterious, are caught up in those pressures and they think, well, uh, the way things are, the struggles I'm facing right now, uh, that's not going to change. And yet, it will change sometimes in very unexpected ways. Unfortunately, uh, the change is not always uh, unidirectional. Uh, sometimes it's two steps forward, one step back. Occasionally the steps back are huge. Uh, I worry about uh, certain, let's say, uh, <clears throat> intensifications of violence in the world with uh, the crisis in Ukraine right now, for instance, and the hawkish demeanor that we see on both sides of that crisis, that uh, certain reckless, impulsive behaviors, as you mentioned, could lead to a lot of damage, a lot of human suffering, and a lot of lives that are taken from the world, uh, people who will not have the chance to see the kind of bright future we envision. So this is a problem that needs to constantly be combated. Unfortunately, there's not an easy solution, but one would hope that over time, as material prosperity improves, hopefully, as technological possibilities become accessible to more and more people, there would be less of a willingness to engage in violent or fanatical behaviors just because there's more to lose from doing that. If you have a comfortable life, why risk it fighting the other or trying to persecute the other who might as well persecute you in turn. As Shakespeare said, prosperity is the very bond of love. And it is funny how people flee from really fanatical ideas once they get their Mustangs and good wine and whatever else they may want. Indeed, indeed. And uh, Frédéric Bastiat, the uh, great 19th century French economist, uh, stated, when goods don't cross borders, armies will. 
uh, he discussed the unifying effects of commerce, how commerce helps people overcome differences and deter aggression just because it's so much more advantageous to trade with somebody than to try to take away what they have. It's hard to speculate on what goes on in other people's minds, but of course we're all human and we all face many of the same problems. Unconsciously, I'm sure the vast majority of people, as attested to by numerous psychiatrists and ancient texts, are afraid of death. And to paraphrase Camus, we are all prisoners with an uncertain execution date. Yes. I think on some level we're all aware of it. Yes, indeed. And the question is, what does one do with that fear? I think it's a reasonable fear to have, considering that one's own non-existence means the loss of everything, not just every material possession or sensation, but even the very memory of having been, of having existed. So it's an understandable fear, but given that one has it, uh, what is the course of action? I think the people who try to ignore it or rationalize it away are actually doing themselves a disservice, especially today. Uh, if a hundred years ago uh, they engaged in that thinking, it would be understandable, and I'm grateful to the people who made something of their lives even then and who gave us essentially the technological infrastructure that we enjoy today. However, right now, I think is the time for action, for using that fear to realize hmm, we have a window to try to do something about the problem and all of the infrastructure that our ancestors have built and that we have contributed uh, some little parts to can be deployed now to save us. And this is our chance, the opportunity for our generation and the several generations that precede us to really radically alter the human condition. The human condition historically has been associated with these limits that are really a function of physical frailty and technological underdevelopment. But now these limits can be pushed back in an unprecedented way. And if this is the opportunity that's open to our generation, I would say it is the most amazing and worthwhile opportunity of all time. So of course we should seize upon it. And whatever drives us, fear, hope, uh, essentially a desire for something better than what we have now, uh, it should be seized upon as a motivator. Yes, because I do think death is a massive discouragement to progress and to doing what you want to do. Ah. Uh -huh. I know that we have discussed, I've discussed with a couple different people good ways to promote the idea and to whom it should be marketed. And I don't blame ordinary people for being somewhat indifferent to it because of course they have many, many things to worry about between getting the kids to soccer practice and getting them to the dentist and paying their mortgage, etc., etc. But a wealthy person, particularly one in approaching old age should be very interested in this sort of stuff. Yes, yes, and there is some uh, grounds for hope in there from say the rising Silicon Valley billionaires, people like 
Larry Page and Sergey Brin and Peter Thiel, who have been putting some efforts into it. Peter Thiel is a big donor to the Sense Research Foundation, for instance, and Google funds Calico, the new life extension company that I think is going to try to take the pharmaceutical track for uh, attempting to achieve some reversals of senescence. So these are all hopeful signs. And I do think every person has an opportunity to help in ways that are uniquely suited to that person. Uh, some people, of course, are well suited to do research. Some people are well suited to donate money. But pretty much anybody can speak about the prospects of life extension to those whom they know. And uh, in terms of spreading the ideas, uh, I'm very happy that I was able to uh, do my uh, rather prominent campaign in 2014 to ship out more than a thousand copies of Death is Wrong to children throughout the world. That was really an encouraging initiative because we had hundreds of people coming together from all over the world to donate to the fundraiser which exceeded its goal to receive shipments essentially and serve as activists in their own capacity in distributing the books to kids they knew. So it was uh, really a, an excellent example of how like-minded people can mobilize their efforts even though they're geographically dispersed and help in their own way do something about the problem. And I think this is a current that needs to be uh, continually added to. It's a set of behaviors that needs to be nurtured and everyone has a role to play. I think anybody watching this could begin by spreading news articles that are relevant to the prospects of life extension, participating in discussions, writing articles, making videos, thinking about creative projects of their own that might fill a vacuum. Uh, my book filled a vacuum in the realm of children's books that communicate the prospect of indefinite life extension, but there are other areas where the message could be spread where it's not that prevalent right now. Sure, and people can become directly involved through projects like at our RNA and fold it, eat her yes. RNA. Yes. So whether you want to do RNA or protein puzzles is entirely up to you. And I suspect that those sorts of projects will continue to increase in their frequency. And the truth is, at this point, biology itself is becoming less and less expensive to do from your home. For instance, Arcturus, a biohacking startup, all you have to do is code, type into a terminal, and you can begin contributing something to the progress of the science. And these are wonderful projects that essentially facilitate citizen science. Uh, taking science out of the exclusive purview of people with a lot of resources who have to spend many, many years obtaining academic credentials and giving anyone the opportunity to contribute in ways that they're qualified to do or ways that are easy to do. Uh, a lot of great games have emerged. You mentioned Foldit. Uh, there is also a game called Play to Cure Genes in Space, which was developed by Cancer Research UK. Essentially, you fly a spaceship and you harvest an element in space and shoot asteroids. And the course 
you plot is actually an analysis of cancer data. And they put out another game recently called Reverse the Odds, where you can solve puzzles, and your uh, access to solving those puzzles is dependent on slides that you analyze from cancer samples, and you have to uh, answer a few questions about each slide before you get to do a puzzle. So uh, these are innovative ways to try to get people to contribute. Even uh, they don't have to actively do anything in some cases where they want to contribute. They can keep their computer running uh, and folding at home or Rosetta at home or many of the projects on World Community Grid will utilize the resources of one's computer and generate results that scientists can apply in their research. So, so many different ways and uh, some of these ways are ready-made, others uh, will be accessible with some tinkering by individuals, but I think anybody who is watching this right now can become a part of this great movement for revolutionizing the human condition. And they will. I think it's gaining momentum. It undoubtedly will gain momentum because in the end truth wins. Sometimes it takes a while, but eventually it wins. You can't shut it out forever, and more importantly, this is something that a great number of people should be interested and will be, because no one, or hardly anyone, wants to die. Indeed. Uh, and I think on a day-to-day -day basis, people act in a way that's consistent with the ambitions of the life extensions movement, at least to the extent that they do try to improve their circumstances. Sometimes they have deleterious habits. A lot of people still smoke or drink alcohol to excess, but I don't think those habits arise out of a death wish. I think they arise out of uh, perhaps a desire to cope with the difficulties of life in an immediately accessible way, and if the proximate difficulties are so great, uh, they might ignore essentially the long-term damage. But if there were a way, for instance, to render cigarette smoking harmless to the body, but uh, for it to continue to have the same psychological effects, I think a lot of people uh, would embrace that, uh, which suggests that there is room for getting them to act in a life-affirming manner. Uh, it's uh, just a matter of getting them to see how feasible the prospect is and how accessible ways to act toward it are. The, well, the Freudian death drive can be interpreted in a few ways. I think Beyond the Pleasure Principle is a very important book and one of the darkest in the Western canon, but I've interpreted it as someone raging against death, so they want to die on their own terms, more or less. I mean, that's one possible view. So if they have a death wish, perhaps it's just a protest against the inevitability of death. And it would be interesting to see how that thinking would be transformed if indefinite life were indeed a possibility. I have an essay called Life Extension and Risk Aversion, which discusses what would happen even to the rate of accidents or... Uh, people who fall prey to natural disasters if indefinite life extension were attained. And I think people would have motivation to become a lot more careful 
because now if they fall victim to an accident or a disaster, they don't just have uh, 30, 50, 70 years to lose. They might have hundreds or thousands or millions of years to lose, and uh, therefore the cost would be much greater. So there would be more of an incentive, for instance, to devise uh, safer vehicles. Already uh, the emergence of autonomous vehicles is very promising and I just really hope they gain acceptance in the Western world over the next five years because they could save hundreds of thousands of lives each year uh, throughout the world if they're widely adopted. And uh, I think there are so many other ways in which people would be motivated to act to mitigate risk. Preventing infrequent but large-scale natural disasters, finding out more about seismology or about what might trigger a volcanic eruption and not just trying to avoid it but trying to prevent it, trying to deflect asteroids that might have the Earth in their trajectory, colonizing other worlds, which we've mentioned. All of these uh, can be uh, so powerful uh, if human beings realize, oh, we actually need to think about that if we're going to uh, plan to be alive for a much longer time frame. There are two different things I was thinking about, and I suppose I'll go with the first one. And you and I have discussed it about how to target a younger audience and expose them, because of course they're the ones that are going to be the most open to these ideas. And they're the ones who are most likely to, well, they can choose their profession at this point. So something like a movie, a video game, any of these things can inspire them to say, well, maybe this is what I want to dedicate my life to. Because, and we, you mentioned it a little bit earlier, that academia is sometimes a bit of a hassle. But uh, they can come in, they can begin to shift it slowly but surely. In evolutionary biology, for instance, there are still a number of different theories about aging. And even though it's becoming clear that the program theory is essentially the correct one, there's still debate and there's still those who think it's not something that can easily be reversed. It is very innate. It is irremovable. It's interesting, though, if it's so irremovable, uh, why we see examples of creatures who uh, have been well documented not to senesce or to barely senesce at all. And if we have giant tortoises that can live 200, 250 years, if we have clams that can live to four to five hundred years like the ocean quahog, uh, why can't humans eventually figure out an analogous way to resist senescence. So it seems to me that uh, this idea that senescence and death are deeply ingrained in human biology is uh, almost uh, part of this myth of human nature that a lot of the pre-modern tradition has developed, uh, the idea that human nature is something that's completely fixed and unchangeable and you can work with it to a certain extent but you can't fundamentally alter it and yet we've seen over time 
how far fundamentally it has been altered, how different we are from our caveman ancestors, how differently we look at the world, how differently we think about the proper path to knowledge or what is the most efficacious course of action to take. So I think it's a perhaps pre-modern vestige that unfortunately a lot of people still have because that way of looking at the world has not gone away in any sense. Uh, and the way to overcome it is again to keep challenging that status quo bias, to keep realizing we are so different from our ancestors and what they would have considered human nature in some ways we've already uh, overcome. Uh, in other ways uh, we still have uh, a long path to tread to overcome. But uh, the very fact that we are in such a different position now should give us hope. I should say quasi-program theory of aging because the normal program theory is very hard and simple and it's based on just a few observations in nature like salmon dying shortly after reproducing. Uh, just that it's quasi-programmed, it makes aging events more probable, it's in essence. Ah, <laughs> One of the other concerns, and this one I don't think is absolutely invalid, especially given the state of healthcare in America and in other countries that are experimenting with the socialist models is that it will be too costly for a prolonged period of time, not just in the short run, to stop the aging process. Well, the response to that is that technologies that uh, have proliferated historically have tended to follow uh, certain stages. And at first, yes, when they were in an experimental stage, they were costly, relatively rare, and not that effective, uh, actually. So they were available to the few people who could have the time and money to experiment with them and give feedback to the creators of these technologies who would then try to make them better and bring them to a broader market. As long as there's a profit motive, uh, there would be an incentive to innovate technologically because uh, at least the enterprising uh, people in the field will see an opportunity. Uh, here's a customer base who could make use of this technology and now already sees that there are some who are using it so it's become a status symbol. Uh, however, the technology needs to be refined and mass-produced in order to be made available. So uh, over time, the technology becomes more accessible and cheaper and more reliable as various bugs are worked out. Cell phones are an excellent example compared to the huge, bulky cell phones with intermittent reception that were the status symbol of executives in the late 1980s. Our devices are superior in every single respect by many orders of magnitude and yet many poor people in sub-Saharan Africa can have access to those immensely superior devices today. And eventually, technologies become so abundant 
and so accessible and so inexpensive that sometimes they become virtually free. Think email today. Uh, pretty much nobody pays for an email service anymore. Or, or antibiotics or vaccines. Mm -hmm. yes, they are very inexpensive. They are very inexpensive even though at, at certain points in time they were cutting-edge technologies whose application made the difference between life and death for millions of people. So I think life-extending technologies will follow a similar trajectory. Of course, they will be unevenly distributed, and at first they will be expensive, which is actually one argument for trying to bring them into existence as soon as possible, because ultimately to save as many people who are currently alive as we can, we need to make sure that that early stage is uh, progressed through sooner. So that, yes, we'll, we'll have some years where uh, it will be a preserve of the wealthy, but as long as there's a free market and no prohibition on people getting the service, as long as uh, it's not so heavily regulated that it's difficult for anybody to innovate past a certain stage, uh, there will be progress and there will be demand. The moment people see, oh, these billionaires are living to 120 years routinely now, or here's this 80-year-old billionaire and he looks like he's 40, uh, I want that. And over time, uh, they will start getting it, and entrepreneurs will start figuring out ways of bringing it to them. Again, if the society and the political system permit this kind of innovation, I do worry about uh, attempts to ration health care or create any sort of system of centralized oversight over health care because it tends to lead actually to a very petty, penny-wise, pound-foolish mentality where now that you have everything in a common pool and you have entitlements that are paid out of that pool, whatever you pay to one person, uh, that's less available to somebody else. And then there's this fixed pie mentality when really the mentality should be you grow the pie and you try to innovate at the outermost edges of progress and that eventually spreads to everybody and benefits everybody. Uh, so I think the way to help this along actually is to promote what I would call libertarian life extension reforms. And I have a video series and an essay about that, trying to make medical innovations more available to people, more affordable, and have fewer political barriers in the way of the innovators. And that way you can make sure eventually that even the poorest people in sub-Saharan Africa will get these treatments. Government can certainly play a negative role in healthcare. On the other hand, if it's funding certain organizations, it can do good. For instance, a friend of mine recently received, well, he and his team received $50 million from DARPA for a peptide machine, which has enormous medical applications and it makes the whole process much cheaper and much faster. So I. I certainly think they should keep their hands out of health care. However, they can serve as a way of collecting money and putting it into worthy organizations. And I would suppose it's a 
definitely a nuanced situation. Uh, for instance, I would support uh, increases in government funding of medical research if they come uh, at the cost of decreases to military spending, for instance. You spend less money on killing people and you take that money and you devote it to lengthening people's lives or saving people's lives. That's definitely worthwhile in my view. Uh, now, I do think a great deal of caution needs to be taken with that kind of funding because uh, almost always there are strings attached. And if you have a, a political mindset, a mindset where uh, this is the public's money, so it has to be spent in the public interest and uh, the government needs to have oversight uh, on it, that often leads to limitations to what research can be pursued and uh, various uh, let, let's say uh, ulterior motives to funding certain research. Now sometimes those ulterior motives uh, can still work out to something uh, that is good on that, like the space programs uh, of the 1960s and 70s, which really did uh, push outward the frontier of human possibility. Unfortunately, uh, we've seen what happened to them because they were so political, when the political impetus for really ramping up uh, space exploration and research died down as the Cold War tensions subsided. Uh, the space programs uh, essentially were kept in maintenance mode but really did not undertake very many bold initiatives along the lines of the moon landing of 1969. And that's what I worry about. Uh, sometimes you could have a large boost of initial innovation through, uh, say, funding by the U.S. federal government or another national government, but over time you might create a very sclerotic, bureaucratic type of system that just uh, takes on a life of its own but doesn't really contribute to the larger goal. So this is where uh, I think it's important to consider the specific circumstances and it's important to consider the time frame. If somebody could say, oh, uh, with 10 years and a billion dollars or fifteen billion dollars or however much uh, we could actually get to a point where longevity escape velocity is reached maybe that would be worthwhile uh, but if it takes much longer than that I worry about creating an institutional behemoth that becomes uh, a bulwark of the old order so to speak yes I, the strings are a concern on the other hand, I was speaking with a Keynesian about about a week ago, and he was talking about the example of Bell Labs, from which many, many innovations came. Unix and C programming language are two, to a lesser extent, personal computers. And that was a government monopoly, but it is responsible for a lot of very useful technologies. And as he said, there is certainly corruption in governments, but there's also corruption in the private sector. Sure. And in this instance, I see some synergy between governments, corporations, and people working in their basements. Because as I mentioned earlier, it's becoming cheaper and easier for almost anyone to do biology. Yes, and I definitely think there is sometimes a role for a large institution. If you take the example of, say, a large car manufacturer like Ford or General Motors, and then you have an upstart like Tesla that is trying to revolutionize the field 
technologically. And once Tesla came out with its Roadster and then its Model S, the big car companies saw that, oh, this small company is doing something we haven't been able to do. It would be an embarrassment if we didn't start uh, putting out viable electric models of our own. So you had the uh, Volt, the Nissan Leaf, and other uh, models that are currently being developed. Same with Google and the autonomous vehicles. And now uh, there are many other companies that are working on autonomous vehicle technology, including uh, Audi, Nissan, and many others. So uh, yes, you could have a small innovator demonstrate that something is possible and then a large institution picks it up and has more resources to devote to it. Of course, it's important also to consider that all of these entities uh, are really comprised of human beings and this is where the idea of methodological individualism comes in. Just because someone is a corporate employee or a government employee or a politician or an entrepreneur in a garage. It doesn't negate the fact that that person is an individual and uh, will often think and function at an individual level. So then, uh, again, this is why it's a nuanced issue. It's a question of the values that that person holds, what that person wants to achieve, how that person sees the job, uh, what is it an instrument to? Is it just an instrument for personal enrichment? Is it an instrument for trying to affect some change in the world, uh, trying to bring about some vision of what is good, what is desirable? Uh, so if you have more competent people, if you have more virtuous people in any of these positions, you'll have better results. I think uh, also another important question is to what uh, type of work in what type of setting is a given person more suitable. Some people uh, who would be excellent entrepreneurs uh, in their garages would find say a corporate environment very stifling and regimented and an environment that would snuff out their ideas. So it'll be interesting to see how it develops and uh, how it evolves. Ultimately I am a consequentialist and I will take a good thing where I can get it and then uh, as somebody who is of a libertarian mind, uh, I would also apply my economic analysis and my analysis of incentives to see, okay, uh, this outcome, it might be good, it might be better than nothing. There might be some limitations to it, some ways in which perhaps some perverse incentives uh, still play out. And this is, uh, for instance, the way I think of NASA. I think uh, if for instance, military spending in the U.S. could be cut, I would support taking that money and using it to increase NASA's budget, uh, but I also see the many ways in which NASA has been hobbled by uh, perverse incentives of the political process. The example I was thinking of was Unix. You had Unix and then it spawned open source alternatives. And of course it doesn't require very much investment to code, you just need the energy to power the computer and the computer in the first place. But with biohacking, that's also becoming less and less expensive to order custom pair, DNA pairs. Yes. That's within my budget, anyone's budget, really, even if you're working at McDonald's. <laughs> and to order some E. coli or yeast or whatever you want to insert the plasmids into, 
again, that's negligible. And that will continue to decrease bioprinting too, like standard plastic printing will revolutionize it further. So this top-down, it can go bottom-up or top-down, and it's impossible to say. That's, that's the Austrian attitude, right? Well, it's the Austrian and the Keynesian attitude. It's just the neoclassicists who think they can predict things. Yes, well, I think the role of time and uncertainty is uh, very heavily emphasized in the Austrian School of Economics, and the fact that no one individual really has the complete picture. We may think we know a lot, but really each of us is a small part of the broader economy and the broader society. And that's a good thing because there are all of these other people who are working in their own ways to bring about progress and improvement. And unfortunately, there are also some people who are destructive and uh, are tearing down the achievements of others. And it's a question of uh, the distribution of human attributes and whether that distribution is one that facilitates a preponderance of progress or a preponderance of destruction and retrogression. Uh, unfortunately, throughout history, we have seen periods of time in which destruction and retrogression prevailed, the very long decline of the Roman Empire, the subsequent Dark Ages until about 1000 CE are a great example of how something like that could happen. So uh, I think the moral imperative for each human being, whatever the situation they find themselves in in their lives, uh, whatever position they're in, whatever environment they're better suited to, is to be an influence in the direction of progress, in the direction of improvement, to be rational and enlightened and forward-looking rather than uh, petty and resentful and destructive and attempting to maximize some uh, very parochial end at the expense of uh, a broader good. So that, to me, I think is a key insight uh, to take out of this. And it'll be very interesting to see uh, from what sources innovation will unfold in the future. Right now it seems to me the big problem in the West is a kind of ossification of institutions. Even institutions that used to be dynamic a generation or two ago have essentially become so locked within themselves and within their habitual modes of functioning. Everything has become minutely prescribed. And there might be reasons for certain rules or certain ways of doing things, but they're reasons that were adapted to a particular time in history. And as the circumstances of the world have changed, some of the old rationales have become less relevant. But people who are ingrained in certain ways of doing things, or people who want to protect their position in life that was derived from an older paradigm or older successes might stand in the way of dis uh, disruptive innovation, what uh, Joseph Schumpeter called creative destruction that needs to happen within institutions and within markets in order to facilitate progress. And it's an important topic. It's something that everyone should think about, or at least anyone with influence or anyone who thinks they will be influential at some point. So, 
yes, I think more than anything, this aspect of economics is something we should all focus upon. Because in the long run, unemployment seems like an inevitability as things, as processes become more automated. Inflation is a continuing concern for many people, but if and when we have this ideal world in which all our needs are satisfied, it won't really be a problem either, will it? I think it would be less of a problem, certainly. I think there will always be a role for currency, for a medium of exchange, just because uh, no matter how much material abundance we have, even if we can 3D print most of the things we need on a day-to-day -day basis, there might still be larger scale construction projects where the resources might be harder to get by. There might still be the question of how do you get the raw stuff to 3D print whatever it is you want. And or an original Van Gogh or whatever it is that may have value to you and other yeah. people. Whatever people value, whatever people uh, find uh, a desire for that's not ubiquitously available, there will be a role for a medium of exchange for that. I think the nature of that medium of exchange is going to have to evolve dramatically. Clearly, uh, paper-based fiat money issued by a national government is uh, an extremely poor medium of exchange. It's vulnerable to uh, not just inflation, but hyperinflation, as we've seen so many times throughout history. And it's really a way for uh, existing ossified institutions to kind of siphon the, the productive capacities of everybody else toward their benefits because a central banking system, the way it inflates, it pays the politically connected financial institutions first while diminishing the purchasing power of ordinary people who usually see the new money less. That was uh, one of Ludwig von Mises's great insights in his theory of money and credit. So uh, how do we change that? I think decentralized cryptocurrencies are an excellent development in recent years, uh, certainly an emerging development with some of its own vulnerabilities and concerns, the biggest one being uh, the security concern, uh, the risk of fraud that comes with it, but also the volatility of some of these currencies and some of the technical problems that uh, arise, for instance, where when you have a single large mining company uh, controlling 51% uh, of uh, the processing power that's devoted to the mining of these currencies. But it is a promising concept in that with Bitcoin and the various altcoins, uh, there has emerged a tool that is completely outside the power of any central bank or any national government to uh, really uh, quench uh, the algorithm will exist, the blockchain will continue to exist, and it'll be a matter of, well, how do people apply it to the physical world? But uh, you see not even the governments of uh, China uh, or uh, Russia, who are quite authoritarian, have been able to say, no, no, we, we prohibit Bitcoin. Uh, it's more like they've been able to warn people about it or uh, try to say, well, this isn't really a, a national currency, but they have no power to prohibit it. 
and in Western governments, who also don't like it, by the way, uh, they've been able to just promulgate some rules about, well, how is it going to be treated for tax purposes? Uh, which entities have to register with the government if they uh, engage in cryptocurrency uh, transactions on a mass scale? But they can't get rid of it. And over time, I think uh, it has a chance of taking hold. I do hope that it evolves further to get rid of a lot of the present vulnerabilities and the volatility that we've been seeing so that it can be a stable store of value and not just a medium of exchange. And like life extension itself, cryptocurrencies are a concept that people have to grapple with and eventually accept. We've been seeing that moving slowly and then eventually quickly, I assume, in the future. They will say, ah, well, these things aren't so crazy after all. Mm -hmm. I, I remember that uh, it seemed very fringe, even, say, around 2011, 2012. I was first introduced to the concept of Bitcoin in 2011, and at the time my attitude was as a libertarian, I welcomed it, uh, but I thought uh, in terms of how I would devote my computing power, it was either uh, essentially run calculations that could contribute to scientific research or solve these mathematical problems that have no external significance in order to generate a lot of bitcoins as part of this experiment. And in a, in a sense, uh, I do have a bit of regret that I decided not to keep my computer running all the time in 2011 to generate bitcoins because given what has happened to their exchange value since then, uh, I could have uh, become considerably wealthier as a result of doing so. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, it was a pleasant uh, surprise for me to see just how rapidly the concept has spread and its usage has spread. Uh, and of course, I am far too uh, conservative in my personal mindset to engage in financial speculation, so I wouldn't be the kind of person buying and selling bitcoins, but uh, I'm glad that there's a more active market for them out there now, and I hope eventually ordinary people will be able to use them to purchase their daily necessities, especially in countries that are prone to very high rates of inflation or political instability, it could be a great boon to them. And uh, it already has been in Kenya. More people have Bitcoin wallets than they do bank accounts. So, yes, indeed. And even though India has some laws, has recently passed some laws against it, it's still in use there and they do not have the resources to squash it. Yes, not all laws will be effective. And actually, uh, it's a libertarian case for a limited set of laws that actually will do what they intend to do. And you can't have a very expansive, intrusive system of government uh, that would accomplish that. If you have common sense laws like prohibitions against murder and theft, uh, then people will honor those laws and there will be a culture of respecting the law. That is the concept of the rule of law that uh, a lot of libertarians treasure. 
but if you have laws that are unenforceable or selectively enforced, then unfortunately that will breed contempt for even the good laws and it will result in the good laws being disregarded. It's why this uh, terrible failed war on drugs has been accompanied by so much uh, genuine criminality, violent criminality, theft and murder. And if the war on drugs were to end, that violent aspect of it would subside very quickly. Well, there's a quote by Andrew Jackson. He said, John Marshall has made his ruling, now let him enforce it. Yes. And that's, that's the truth. The law is only as good as your capacity to put it into motion. And it relies on the vast majority of people in a given society essentially accepting the law as being good and being willing to follow it voluntarily. Because there's no way even the most totalitarian state can uh, watch over every single action of its citizens. Even right now with NSA surveillance, which seems to be ubiquitous, uh, there are still human beings sifting through that data and making decisions about whom to look at more closely, whom to target more closely, and because there's such an immense abundance of human activity, uh, they can't possibly minutely control the actions of everybody. And that's actually a cause for hope, because uh, if this implies that the majority of people don't murder and steal because they are too good to do that, they inherently experience a revulsion to that, they realize it's not the right thing to do, then there's hope for humankind. And we hope that those good qualities, those civilized qualities that uh, lead most people to choose not to murder and steal can also be expanded upon to lead more people to create and innovate and to get us to the point where we achieve indefinite life extension as well as solve the many other problems of the status quo that we discussed today. Yes, yes, and we are nearing the hour and 30 minute mark. So I suppose we can talk a little bit about Death is Wrong, the video game, something that we've tossed around a bit. And I think a 2D scroller with symbols of all the things we've discussed today to clear up various misconceptions people may have and to teach people between the ages of 10 to 35, 40, the average age of a video game player has continued to rise and more people getting into it. It would be a wonderful outlet. I think so as well. And uh, there are many possibilities. Uh, I suggested having the main character be the boy who is on the cover of Death is Wrong and having him go through various environments representing uh, the perils of the human condition, say disease, famine, war, and beating back nemeses in each of these environments, and then at the end uh, approaching the Grim Reaper himself and having an epic battle with the Grim Reaper. And I think that would be good for getting people to realize, oh, all of these are 
threats to human beings, and all of these are problems that we need to confront and we need to overcome. And we ought to do it in our lifetimes, because ultimately, if we're not around to experience the outcome, it's as if it didn't happen for us. That's exactly actually what it is. It would not have happened for us. So uh, I think a lot more people need to perceive this imperative to act now, act in our lifetimes to solve these problems and to make one's unique individual contribution toward that. So uh, I would very much welcome a game like that and I would offer it my full support. And if you talk to people who grew up with games, any video games really, but the one that comes to mind is Mario because I was born in 1991 the Super Mario world, if you speak to people around my age, around your age, it's this ethereal, wonderful thing. It's one of their cherished memories, and it yeah. leaves a deep, deep, indelible impression. Absolutely. Absolutely. And any game that can do that while communicating the feasibility and desirability of life extension, I think, could make a significant difference. Uh, I am completely in support of a multimedia approach to the subject through any genre really that people can come up with. Books, articles, films, games, uh, speeches, anything that a person uh, feels capable of doing and has a skill set to engage in would be a welcome contribution to the movement. All right. Yes. And anyone can. They can check out sons.org. They can check out the Methuselah Foundation. They can check out Mile. They can check out... Oh, there are a few other ones not coming to mind immediately, but that's a good place to start. Lifeboat Foundation. Indeed. And at, the, at the end, they can look like the video game character who will gain his upgrades and end up in some sort of awesome state like Mega Man. <laughs> yes, we can all be heroes in this grand quest for indefinite life extension. And I will show you that one of the models an artist friend of mine has generated for the game. It looks a bit like macaroni, but it's meant to represent a beta amyloid. Wonderful. Well, I look forward to seeing that. So we'll keep, keep working on that, and since I'm a little more free now, actually much more free, much more free time, that's something I can work at. We can fundraise it for the graphics, because that's not in my skill set. Or people in the community may be willing to do pro bono work. Yes, yes, and this is something that we ought to emphasize right here. We welcome collaboration with anybody who wishes to contribute resources to this or who uh, wants to go on a search for freely available resources that can be used with a Creative Commons license or have even been placed in the public domain. Uh, it is uh, amazing what an abundance of creativity the Creative Commons license has unleashed. However, uh, one limitation of the Internet in its present form is it's still very difficult to find images, especially when you're looking for something in particular. So this is where uh, some 
human effort put into it could lead to some very promising graphical resources we could access for free. And of course, anybody uh, is welcome to contact me. My email address is janatistolirovii at gmail.com with suggestions about graphical resources for this game. I'd be happy to consider that. And on the podcast and the blog and whatever else I post to connect to this video, I will put our contact information on it. Wonderful. Get it together, and since the software I'm using would allow me to embed it into a web browser, I can get working on that, and I can embed it into the WordPress. I've been meaning to transfer all of my podcasts over there anyway, because the front end Libsyn provides is not particularly pretty. All right. So I think we have had an excellent discussion today. We've addressed a broad range of issues from uh, the key problems facing the world to some practical initiatives that are currently underway that are accessible to people. So I've enjoyed this, Adam. You're welcome, and thank you for coming on. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. All right. The same here. It will be up soon? Well, it's going to upload to YouTube immediately, and then the audio for the podcast will be up. Fortunately, I think we've both done very well, and I don't really need to edit it. At least not much. Wonderful. Okay. Farewell, and thank you to everyone who has watched. Few people have watched. <laughs> Farewell. Farewell. Ah. Uh -huh.